The following message is distributed by the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. I'm going to start reading. Psalm 131. One of my favorite psalms. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray. Father, when I preach, I often, as you well know, I often perseverate about the future. I worry, I churn. Will, will I get this sermon done? Will, how will this be received? How will, it, how will it strike this person or that person? What, how to say this? What, how will this sound like? What, how will this go? And you tell me as I, as I perseverate, as I churn about the future, you, you remind me that I'm thinking above my pay grade, that I'm hoping in myself, that I need to calm and quiet my soul. And the way that I calm and quiet my soul within me is by stopping thinking like that and by hoping in you. You are our hope. You are alive, and you are here with us. And so in that I trust right now, as I'm going to preach a sermon, I have words, but what I will trust in now, Father, is the work of your Son to happen, to to, to be transmitted, to, to be clearly communicated now, not by me, but by your Spirit. Would you cause that to happen? Would you please do that? I thank you that you are alive and you are our hope. That our hope is not some ethereal uh, best wishes. Our hope is a man, a God-man who has been resurrected, who has been raised from the dead, who lives, who lives and is every moment pouring out for us what we need You pour out for us, Lord Jesus, everything we need, every moment, every step of the way until we see you face to face. For you you are a good Savior. You are a wonderful Savior. So please, by your Spirit, please make that clear to us today. Make that even more clear to us. Draw us even more so to yourself this morning pray for each person here. Pray that you would meet each one of us right where we are at, and and please provide what we need this morning. You know what each person needs. Would Would you move this morning through the words, through your word, and provide that? I don't know what it is. That's above my pay grade, so I will hope in you. So please work and move, we pray. Amen. Well, what's your story? 
we had 10 minutes to talk, you could sit down right now and you could tell me your story, what would it be? How would it start? What's the beginning sound like? What's happening now? What's the, what's the middle of the story sound like? And why? Why is what is happening happening? And, and tell me the end of your story. Tell me about how you imagine your future. As you think about your future, what impact is it having on you today? However you conceive of your future, it is shaping you, and it is helping to, to set the trajectory of your life today, however you conceive of your end, your future. Our stories define us. How you conceive of your past in many ways sets how you think about your future. And how you think about your future is having a, a much greater impact than many of us realize on how we are living our life today. Our stories define us. They press into us. They matter a great deal. Your beginning often defines your end, and your end and your beginning define who you are and what you are doing and where you are going today. Your story matters. Two weeks ago, Pastor Steve preached to us the end of our story from Revelation 22 about a new heavens and a new earth, a city covering the earth. Do you remember that? Remember the, the mental pictures, if you were here, that were coming up in your mind? Wondrous images. Your mind starts to break down the more you think about it. At the center of this city is a tree of life. An entrance to the city means eternal security, real life forever. Life forever with Christ in a new heavens and a new earth. No more futility, no more tears, no more fear, no more sin, no more pain. At the end, a city awaits us, a city full of satisfaction for your soul forever. We will see God, Christian. We will see God face to face. That's amazing. This is the central message of Revelation, um, the book of Revelation, and the, the writer John puts it right in the middle in chapter 11, verse 15. There, John says, the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord and His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. This is the end of our story. God is merging this world and that world and making the earth His heaven. And then just a few verses later in chapter 12, verse 11, John tells us how anyone endures to the end of this story and enters that kingdom. He says it by referring back to the real beginning of any Christian story. We endure to the end, it says, by the blood of the Lamb. That's how we get to the end, by the blood of the Lamb. With all its dazzling and fearful imagery, this is the simple message of Revelation. God, through fearful judgment, is making earth his heaven, and Christ will reign in this new heaven and this new earth forever. And the way that we enter into this, the way that we reign with him, is by enduring to the end. A real Christian will endure to the end. And how do we endure to the end? We do it, ironically, not on the basis of what we do but on the grounds of what Christ did for us by the blood of the Lamb. The beginning of our story, the cross, sets the end of the story, His return. 
in these two, two days, Christian, are meant to press into you today. Your past, your past in Christ, and your future in Christ are meant to press into you today and define who you are and what you do today. So, how exactly should our story press into us today? How exactly should our story change our trajectory? What does this look like? How does this work? Well, the passage before us this morning tells us that. So please turn with me to what might be the last page in your Bible, Revelation 22. We're going to be looking at verses 6 through 17 this morning. 6 through 17 of Revelation 22. Let me read. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. The word of the Lord. The section begins with the angel commenting to John on the authenticity and the truthfulness of these words in verse 6. Well, what words? The words of this prophecy. This is a, a common way that ancient letters would end, with some kind of statement verifying the authenticity of the writer and what's just been said. The writer, though, if you read here, is God in Jesus, the Lord who filled all the previous prophets with his words by his Spirit. The same God and Lord and Spirit are now filling John as he, as he writes these words and shares them with us. And God has a purpose in writing to tell his servants, verse 6, the churches, what must soon take place. And then Jesus himself speaks in verse 11. He is coming soon and he comes with a purpose. We've got to get this. He comes with a purpose to bring us blessing. Blessing. God caused these words to be written down for us so that we would know what must soon take place. Why? Because knowing these words would bring us blessing. 
That's what Christ is after here. That's what Christ is after today, right now in this moment, by me preaching these words. So before we go any further, we got to see this, that Revelation, if anything, is a letter of love. God in Christ will stop at nothing to see his people experience infinite blessing. It is a letter of love from the great high king to his beloved bride. He will stop at nothing to bring her to himself. He does this, though, for his own delight, his own delight in seeing his bride delight in him forever and ever and ever. That's what he's after here in these words. His bride, of course, is the church, you and I. Now, the way we come to this point of blessing is by keeping the words of this book, verse 7. So, what does it mean to keep the words of this book? To keep the words of the prophecy of this book? So, this leads us to the main point today, the main point that I'll be working through in this sermon. Knowing the end of our story should wake us to come to Christ for cleansing and grace in worshipful expectation. I'll repeat that. Knowing the end of our story should wake us to come to Christ for cleansing and grace. How? In worshipful expectation. I'm going to walk through this main point this morning by observing four four facets, four ways that we keep the words of the prophecy of this book. There are four pearls on a string, all connected. And and by the way, kids, if you're you're in the service this morning and you're, you're listening and you're trying to take notes, you, you might hear one word in each point that you might want to write down and maybe draw a picture about. There should be one word that you can hang on to as you, as you listen this morning that you can write down and think about later. <clears throat> so, the, the first way we keep the words of the prophecy is this. Number one, worship God. <laughs> worship God. In verses 8 and 9, John, for the, for the second time, falls down and attempts to worship the angel who's been explaining all these visions to him. First in 19.10, chapter 19, verse 10, and now here. And in both cases, it's after John has, has seen a vision of this amazing blessing that awaits us. The first time is after he's seen the, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he, and he sees us coming to Christ and, and feasting with him total satisfaction, and he falls down in worship. The second is, is here in, in chapter 22, after this vision of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, and he falls down and worships again. Makes the same mistake twice. Sounds like me. John's example of misplaced worship is both negative and positive. His example is negative because, like us, he's tempted to worship the messenger or the message itself. We too are tempted to worship people or we're tempted to worship um, people who have, have great acumen, great insight. They, they have beautiful words that, that oh, cause everything to become clear for us and we're tempted to worship the preacher, not the message, or not the God behind the message, I should say. Or we're tempted to worship the message. We're tempted to, to worship the Bible, if you will. Or we're tempted to worship our own insights our own charts about Revelation, all the things that we've come to know about the Bible, all the while missing the God of the Bible. But the angel says, you must not do that. (laughs) You must not do that. 
And John's example is positive, though, because when he saw the visions, his first reaction was to get down on his knees and worship. Worship. This is not a groveling, cowering worship. This is a a, a lungs-emptying awe of the magnitude of the blessing that awaits us when Christ returns. It is is an awe that stands in wonder at the the lavish magnitude of God's reward to his children. We will see his face, Christian. We will see his face. We will see his face and in the sight of him, we, we will live all of our life forever and ever in perfect friendship with him. Perfect friendship. The kind of intimacy and, and, and completion that we so often look for in human relationships and we never quite get, you will have it in him. You will have it all. You will live forever and ever in perfect protection with no fears, not even about yourself, let alone others. No more will you be tempted to lie and cover up who you are. You will be completely free without fears, that the fears that presently chase you and nag you, you will be free. No more will you experience ignorance and feel the need to follow superstitions. No more will you experience futility in work. Think about this. You will, you will exercise creativity and thought and you will move, and you will do things, and you will create, and you will build, and it will go perfectly the first time, every time. Can you imagine that? First, no, I can't, actually. <laughs> but second of all, can you imagine the, the, the pleasure, the pleasure that you will experience of creating art or, or, or constructing something and, and, and doing it out of completely pure motives, out of love, complete pure love of God and fellow man, and you will do it perfectly every time. Oh, sounds like heaven, because it is. <laughs> that will be pleasure. You will feel and taste and see the complete acceptance and intangible love of God tangible love. You, you will taste it and see it and feel it. Oh, you, you know how you have those certain days in life that you wish you could go back and repeat again and again? Every today in heaven will be that day. You, you will never feel that again. Every day will be that day. You will never desire another day. This is the end of your story, Christian pure in heart, seeing the face of God, experiencing lavish blessing, completely undeserved and yet given without reservation. You could almost say excessively, except it won't be. You could almost say God's grace is excessive, but it is not. It is lavish. So worship him for it. I uh, I just got a text this morning from a friend of mine, paroled, paroled from Haiti, uh, we met in college. Parold learned to speak English by reading his Bible. So whenever he sends me a letter, it sounds like one of Paul's epistles. You know, it's a greetings to you, my brother Jed, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Grace and peace be to you, and all those who are with you and your family. It's beautiful, wonderful. I, when we were in college, I took him up to the St. Louis Arch. You know, the 
St. Louis, big blue arch, silver thing. And you take these egg-shaped elevators up to the top, and there's windows on either side, so you can look down over Bush Stadium and St. Louis on one side, and the other side you can look down over, you know, East St. Louis <laughs> in wonderment. Um, and there were kids up there that day. Woo-wee, wow, oh, cool, wow, isn't that awesome, woo, wow. And uh, I had been up there, it's old hat for me. Kind of like the way some of us read Revelation. Old hat, been here and done this. Got all the charts. And I watched Parold, and Parold went to one window and looked out. Then he went over to the other window and looked out. Then he went over to the other window and looked out, saying nothing. I was watching him, and finally I said, Parold, what do you think? He comes over to me and he says, Oh, Jetty. That's what he calls me, Jetty. Oh, Jetty. Sometimes, sometimes people don't give credit where credit is due. All I can say is, Praise God. Praise God. <laughs> I thought, That is exactly right. That is exactly right. As, as we look at the, the, the blessing, as we, as we look forward to what, what we will experience. We, that ought to be the first thing on our lips is, oh, just praise God. Praise God. And we ought to stand in awe of what is not our end. What is not our end? The fearful wrath of revelation. Stand in awe of God's judgments and remember that you too deserved them. And it's against this dark backdrop that, our, that our, the lavish blessing that we read stands that much brighter. It's all enabled by His grace, all by His choosing, all by Christ's work on the cross. So all we are left to do is stand in awe and worship Him for it. Worship Him for it. He's been so incredibly good to you, Christian, and He will be. I wish I could describe to you all that John saw, but you know what? We will soon enough. So until then, by faith, worship him for it. And there is also another reason to respond in worshiping him. A very immediate one. The book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 14, commands us to strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. The pure in heart will see God. And in this passage before us this morning, it makes very clear that entrance to heaven requires purity. It requires a changed life. And it describes those who are outside the city in terms of their sinful ways. There is a holiness. There is a purity of life without which no one will see the Lord. So I will have more to say of this as we go along, but for now, when, think about this. When you were saved, there were probably some sins that you just went like this, like a bug off your shoulder. Just flicked them off. That was it. Never, never touched it again. But then there are other sins that just, they cling, you know? They, they just cling, and you, you fling them off, and they, they snap back. And you, and you, you fling them off, and, they, and they, they're just sticky. Sticky. And you fight and you toil against these sins and you, you, you grieve them and you hate them sometimes. Hate them. And you fight and you toil because these sins, these sins go deep with you. 
And they go deep because they go down right down into your heart where you worship. They're somehow connected to things that you worship deep down inside that you worship instead of God. So this, this business of worship is crucial. Crucial for attaining the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The very response, the very first response that this book is meant to to cause in you is the very thing that you need to come to this holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Worship. The first step of fighting these deep, clingy sins is worship. So do you see this relationship between worship and holiness? As we, as we wake up and, and see God more clearly, we, we also see, as we see Him, we, we see ourselves and we see just how poor in spirit we are. And how much we need him. But then as we experience his grace, we we see, oh, how lavishly he meets our need. And as we see how lavishly he meets our need, we worship him. And as we worship him, like with anything we worship, we become like him. We become like the thing we worship. As we worship him, we become like him. We become more holy. So crucial, crucial to your growth and holiness is worship, which is the first response this book of Revelation is meant to to draw out of you. But what will wake us up to to see, what will wake us up to this this worship and, and to see him? That's the second point. The second point is this. Hear this prophecy. Be shocked. Wake up. Hear this prophecy. Be shocked. Wake up. That's the second point. I get this from verses 10 and 11. The book of Revelation often is referring back to the book of Daniel and the prophecies of the book of Daniel. Daniel was told not to seal up the prophecy because it was still a ways away. But here the angel tells John to not seal up the words because the time is near. Time is short. And then comes the most difficult sentence theologically in this chapter. The angel says, let the evildoers still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. This is not a command per se, and it's not some fatalistic statement. But what does it mean? Well, we read a very similar statement in chapter 13. Flip there with me. Let's start in verse 8. We read there of a beast, and the people of the world worship it. Who worships this beast there in chapter 13? It reads, Those whose names had not been written before the foundation of the world and the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Those who had not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. The implication there, whom God had not written in this book. It all begins with the the choosing of God. And then we read in verse 10 the very similar statement, a very similar statement to the one in our chapter, one that verse 9 of chapter 13 says we are to hear if we have ears to hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Okay, so what does this mean? Why why is this here? And, And why does the... Why are we said here that we need to hear this? 
It says, if anyone has ears to hear, they need to hear this. Why? What are these statements saying? Well, read with the rest of this book in its context, they're saying something like this. Despite the shocking revelations of the future in this book, despite the judgments and the need for salvation and holiness, despite the eternal stakes and, and the holiness of this God that we all have to answer to, the evil will still be evil and the filthy will still be filthy. But the righteous, in, in hearing these things, will do right and will continue to do right hearing these things. And the holy, hearing these things, will be holy and will endure in being holy until the end. So, why are the righteous righteous and the holy holy? Because their names were written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. Before anything ever happened, God did that. And that's what enabled them to respond this way. So, so again, how is this a call for you and I to respond to endurance and faith? What, how, do, how is that supposed to land with me today and cause me to keep enduring and keep believing? Well, it is this. It does it in this way. All those whose names have been written in this book will respond to this prophecy. They will respond. They will be awakened. And they will be shocked from their lethargy. If your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, you, you will respond to, to your lethargy from your distraction and money and physical appearance, from your trust in good health care. You, you will wake up and see the stakes and see that time is short and see your great need of Christ and you will be moved to Him, to trust Him, to keep enduring, leaning upon Him, not on yourself, not on money, not on good health, not on your looks, not on, not on your job or your spouse or your family. Not anything you do but on him you will be moved towards him you will you will wake up you will be shocked christ himself causes his bride to keep enduring to keep trusting him to the end by means of this prophecy that's what's happening here that's how it's meant to to be a call to us to endure so how does he do this Again, Christ, as we read this book, he, he means to discomfort us. He, he means to, to cause us to feel shocked, to feel, uh, oh, okay, um, whew, this is wild, dazzling, fearful stuff. Yeah, yeah. And it says it's coming soon. Yeah. If you feel a little disoriented, if you feel a little upset, if you feel a little shocked, if you feel a little humbled, that's good. That's the Spirit of God moving in you. That's the Spirit of God using His Word to do something good in you. That's a good thing. <clears throat> Time is short. These fearful images are meant to shock us and move us then to repent, to repent more aggressively, more particularly. We're meant to take a sober look a sober look at our loyalty to Christ and repent. Repent of our waywardness because time is short. Judgment is coming. The end is coming. Those whose names are written in the book will respond towards Christ, towards holiness. As I've been thinking about this this week, I, I, I think about just the amount of time I've wasted in my life. Just wasted time. I hate it. 
I think about it. I hate it. I hate it, but I, but I can't stay there either. I, I can't stay there navel-gazing because that, that's, that is a dark rabbit hole that you, the Spirit does not want to leave you there. He wants to turn you to Christ. Yes, hate the waste. Hate the wasted time. Do you, do you, do you hate your wasted time? I don't, I don't say that with a finger wag. I say that just based on the facts of Revelation. Do you hate the time you've wasted? Good if you do. And let it turn you to Christ. Let it turn you to Christ, not to bitterness, not to darkness. The Spirit wants to use your sin to set your eyes on Christ. So let the Spirit do what He wants in you. Let Him show you how much you need Christ and what in particular you must do in light of His soon return. He is coming soon. And this leads us to the third way we keep the words of the, the prophecy. Number three, expect Christ to return soon in repayment and blessing. Expect Christ to return soon in repayment and blessing. Back in chapter 22, this, this point, chapter 2 of Revelation, this point obviously comes from verses 7 and then verses 12, 13, and 14. Twice we're told in this passage to keep the words of this prophecy, and twice we're told to believe and understand and to keep this statement by Christ. Behold, I'm coming soon. The word behold is meant to be a, a spotlight. It's Christ's way of saying, hey, this is really important, what I'm saying. Behold, behold, spotlight, I'm coming soon. Whatever your story has been up to this point, Christ is calling you to stop and hold this truth as your future. This is the end of the story for all of us. I'm coming soon. He is coming quickly. Whatever your conception of time, he is coming soon. So let, let this press into you a little bit. However much time you think you have, however much time you really do have in actuality, Christ will still come soon. However much time you think history has left, it will be for you and for me quick. If you have kids, you kind of get some sense of this. You know, they grow up so fast. We always say to each other, ah, she's already 12. Oh my goodness, I can't believe it. Yep. Time is moving fast. Christ is returning soon. And when he returns, verse 12, he says he will bring his recompense with him. In the, in the little part of that, compense, that word, we don't use this word very much, but you, you hear the word compensate. When someone causes harm to another person and that person is sued, taken to court, there might be, in our legal system, compensatory damages right? That is, the person who caused the damage is required by the judge and the laws of justice to pay back according to the damage he's done, okay? The problem for us, all of us, is that the damage we've done is infinite because we have defaced the honor of a perfectly holy, infinitely glorious God. Now, how can this be? Well, if someone ran up, right, like, don't do this, but if someone ran up to the podium right now and threw a pie in my face, this actually happened once in a church in Colorado Springs. Someone did this. Uh, uh, you know, okay, that would be disruptive and not pleasant for me. Maybe for you it would, but I mean, but yeah, it's, I'm just Jed, you know? It's just, it's just me. But, but what if I was the Queen of England? What if I was someone more exalted, more royal, more regal? We're full of honor. 
And what if that happened not here, but, but in the queen's realm, in England? What would that be? Just a pie in the face. Just a, just a little lemon custard pie. No, that would be a big deal, a massive deal. Why? Because of the honor of the person you are, you are just throwing the pie at. The point is not the pie. The point is the honor and the, and the, the infinite holiness and royalty of the one you are dishonoring. And the, the honor of the kingdom that you are defacing, that you are disparaging. That's our problem. Every time we have lived in, in lust or pride or selfishness, every time we've lied, every time we've, 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 we've sinned with a, with a little white lie, every time we've, we've lived for ourselves and not for the glory of this king and this kingdom, we have defaced him infinitely. Every moment, every moment, just once would have infinitely been an infinite offense, and yet we've been doing it every moment of our lives. So when it says he comes to repay everyone for what he's, what he's done, it's, he's, he's just being just. He's being just. Because it's his kingdom. And he's always been the sovereign king of this kingdom. Verse 13 says, he was there at the very beginning. He's the Alpha and the Omega. All creation was made through him. He was there at the beginning with the very first words. And he will have the last words. It's his place to have the last word. He's king. So then his recompense will mean exclusion from his city, from his new creation, from his heaven on earth. Exclusion from the tree of life, from inestimable blessing. Because the offense is infinite, so is the repayment. So is the recompense. Exclusion forever in darkness, never-ending torment. So, friend, prepare. Time is short, but there is time. There is sufficient time to prepare. Jesus is calling us to expect this in order to prepare for it. Not to leave you, whoa, but to prepare, to move. By getting a pure heart, Jesus said, only the pure in heart will see God. Only the pure in heart will gain access to eternal life and rest forever in Christ's heaven. So how do we get this pure heart? How do we prepare for his soon return? Well, this leads us to the last point today. How do we keep the words of the prophecy of this book? Number four, we come to Christ washed in his blood for life and rest forever. We come to Christ washed in his blood for life and rest forever. I'm going to say that one more time just so, so that everybody gets it. <laughs> we come to Christ washed in his blood for life and rest forever. We read here that those who are pure in heart are those who wash their robes. What does this mean to wash one's robes? It says this in verse 14. But we get another detail back in chapter 7, verse 14. There John sees a group of people coming out of the great tribulation, a future time of great trial. They were probably killed for their faith. But it says that they were clothed in white robes, robes of purity, no stain, no sin upon them. What was it that made them pure? Was it their own blood? Was it their, what they did, giving up their lives? No, the angel says, 
They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. This is the great irony of the gospel, that we who have darkened our garments with the black stains of our sin and our rebellion against God, stains that come deep from within us, deep within our hearts, all those stains are washed clean. We are washed pure as new fallen snow by washing our garments in blood, in the blood of the Lamb. What does this graphic, brutal imagery mean? This washing happens through a ceremony, but not any ceremony today in any temple with water. It happened at a ceremony 2,000 years ago when God the Father gave the whole world His Son, His own Son, as the sacrifice for sin. He caused Him to be killed on the cross, to give up His life, to spill His blood for us. And in doing so, He, Christ, became us. He became sin in our place before God. God poured out all of His wrath upon Christ instead of us. The Father treated Him the way He should have treated us. He made recompense for all of that rebellion, for all of that infinite offense that you and I had had committed against the King and His kingdom. He paid for it all. He made recompense. Infinite offense repaid, repaid with an infinitely worthy sacrifice. The Son of God, God Himself. Infinite offense was paid with an infinitely perfect man, Jesus. The result? Perfect forgiveness. Okay, so how does that make us white, righteous? Well, He did more than just satisfy justice. At the cross, there was a great exchange All his perfection was imputed, counted to, spiritually given to all those who were forgiven. His righteousness makes our robes clean. His blood, his life, his perfect life is counted, given to, spiritually counted to us. His righteousness makes us spiritually before God, white as the new fallen snow. Pure. Pure. All because of what He did. By His blood, we are made pure, able to see God. So then, okay, so so what does it mean then for you and I to wash our robes in the blood? We are told to wash our robes in the blood of Christ. It means you and I, I think most of us know this here, we trust. We trust in what Christ did for us on the cross. We trust in His work. We trust in the meaning of it, that His blood really did satisfy God, that it made us spiritually pure before Him. And then believing this, we walk as the new people that we are. We trust in the work of Christ, and then we walk in this new identity, in this new story that we've been given, all by His grace, all by His mercy. We live with Him as our King. We repent of old sins by faith, trusting in His blood that has made us clean. A pure heart that sees God is demonstrated by a life lived in repentance. Not perfection. Repentance. So if you have never trusted in Him, I I invite you, I implore you, do so. 
trust in Christ. Even if in verse, looking at verse 15, even if you've lived a life of homosexuality, even if you've lived a life in the occult, even if you've been adulterous or you've been addicted to pornography for years, or if you've committed murder or you've just slandered person after person, or if you've lived a life of lies, regardless, if you would come and wash your robes in his blood, you will be forgiven. You will not be characterized by what you have done. You will be characterized by the righteousness of Christ given to you as a gift. Oh, what a gift that will be. And your story will change. The grace of God is greater than your sin and it will make you new. You will be washed clean and you will find him to be, verse 16, your bright morning star. In the darkness of your sin, you will find him to be at the dawn of a new day. Your story will be remade. It will be recast. You will have a new ending. You will no longer be conquered by your sin and your circumstances. You will be, in the end, an overcomer, a conqueror by the blood of Christ. Do you want that? Trust in Him. Well, how? How do we conquer? How is it that by the blood of Christ we conquer? How, how does that work? Will we endure this way? All of us who have washed our robes in the blood of Christ, it looks like this. We begin by looking at our white robe believing it to be true. We believe it to be true that we really have been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. And then on the basis of this white robe, on the grounds of what Christ did to cleanse our robes, we come to Christ again and again, verse 17, for the water that we need. The last sentence of verse 17 says, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. This is not an evangelistic verse. It is written to the churches. It is written to Christians. Take the water of life without price. We endure by believing the gospel to be true, that we really are washed by his blood. And though you stumble and fall, though you are weak and sometimes can't get yourself to go anywhere, We are really washed by his blood. We really are made pure in heart before God by his blood, by trusting in him. And even when your faith is weak, that's not the point. The fact is, the, the point is the object of, of your faith, regardless of how weak it is. His blood is sufficient to wash you clean, to gain you access to Christ, to gain you access to Christ into his throne room. You can, on the basis of this white robe, come before him into his throne room and ask for living water. The living water that you need to endure today in this temptation, tomorrow in that trial that you will face, Monday morning in that meeting at work or in that busy season with the kids. You will have the living water at your disposal that you need, not on the basis of what you have done, but on the basis of what Christ has done for you. You don't need to earn it. You don't need to pay for this living water. It's already been paid for you, Christian. 
Your sins have already been paid for. You were already clothed in a pure white robe. You don't need to earn your way into grace this time, Christian. You can't sin your way out of access to this living water. He's done it for you. He's done it for you. The only qualification you need to come to him for living water is this. Are you thirsty? Are you thirsty? I'm asking, are are you thirsty? Then you qualify. (laughs) Then you qualify. (laughs) And and, and taking up this living water, drinking of this living water is the very thing you need to be holy. to, To have the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Because the reason why you sin is that you thirst and you run after mirages and mud puddles. That's why we sin. And so the way out of, uh, 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 the, the way to grow in holiness, the, the, the way to, to, to repent of the mirages and, and drinking of the mud puddles that only leave you stained and, and only leave you more thirsty, it doesn't work. But you don't know any other way. And Christ says, I have made the way. I am the way. I am the way. Come to me. This is a message to Christians. The greatest pinch points of your life come to me for living water. And you will not thirst. Come to me. So what is this living water? It it is grace. It is the grace that you need for every thirst in your life. Every thirst in your life where you're tempted to, to deviate, to defect, to run from him, to be wayward. It is the living water that you need to rest and be a person who patiently, truly waits for his soon return. Imagine what that would be like if we were such a people. We were such a people who were so satisfied in Christ that we were able to wait. Wait patiently for him. Satisfied. At peace. Though going through great trials. At peace patiently waiting his return, then we really truly will be a people like it's described in verse 17, a people who with the Spirit say, come Lord Jesus, come. We know that only on that day will we be completely satisfied. On that day we will drink every moment thereafter forever and ever and ever from this this. This water, this living water, and we will never, ever, ever, ever again thirst. You will never know thirst forever and ever and ever. If you would be a person who would live this way, dependent upon the living waters of Christ, then you too will be a person who will live in patient rest, waiting for him, a person who truly does say, come, Lord Jesus. So expect him to come soon. So be prepared. Prepare yourself by being washed. And by being washed, humbly expect him to meet you and satisfy you now in every thirst. In every thirst. His living water will enable you to wait for him patiently in purity until the day we see him face to face. What a day that will be. We will never thirst again because we will see him face to face. We'll be completely satisfied in him forever. Let's pray.
Come, Lord Jesus. Come soon. And until that day, I I pray for each person here. I, I pray that if there are any who have not washed their robes in your blood, I pray that you would move them to do so. Pray that you would mercifully grant them this indescribable gift. And for all of us, all of us who have washed our robes, I pray that you would wake us up, shock us, move us to turn to you, Lord Jesus, in our great need for the living waters that we need to slake our thirst at every every point in our life, every trial, every temptation. And even when we fail, would you give us faith Faith to look at the white robe that you have given us that we did not earn and to know that we can come back to you again for living water. Lord, please fill us with confidence, not in ourselves, but in you, that you will keep providing us living water right down to the end. You love us this much. Your love for your bride is unbreakable. Thank you for this wonderful news. I thank you that in your love you will see us to the very end. So in your blessed, wonderful, wonderful name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message recorded at the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.